here we are. This is Sex Love Psychedelics, and I'm your host, Dr. Kat. Bringing you psychosexual conversations that will leave you intellectually turned on and hungry for more. Hey, lovers. Depression is a mental health epidemic in our modern society, and it's taking a massive toll on our relationships and sex life. Depression is a depressing of our emotions, of our mm, vibrancy, of our power. And yet for so many seeking the answer to resolving the heaviness that it brings, it can be so frustrating to find a proper solution. So many are trying antidepressant medication for the first time, or they've been doing it for years. And if it's an SSRI, then they might be paying the toll with a loss of sexual desire. For an epic conversation about how depression affects sex and what to do about it, check out my episode with Nicoletta Heidegger. That's episode 111. Now, psychedelics have been... Uh, becoming more of a conversation, but if we are already on antidepressants or other psychotropic medications for mental health, does that mean that we're not candidates? Uh, How do we do this safely? And this episode, we are getting into exactly this with Dr. Ben Malcolm with Spirit Pharmacist here to share with us which medications do not mix with psychedelics, and how he consults individuals through tapering process in order for them to explore with psychedelics safely. I believe in the harm reduction model. Psychedelics are out there, and I don't think that it would be ethical for us to not include this conversation, (laughs) to completely ignore it because it's illegal, but to invite the conversation around how to explore safely and the resources that will help to, um, uh, you know, mitigate the dangers. So whether you're on psychotropic medications or not, this is a great episode to educate you on safety practices and to dissolve the judgmental line that is often drawn in the sand, pitting Western medication against psychedelic medicine. There is space for it all. Now you'll want to stay all the way to the end of this conversation because right there at the end, Dr. Malcolm slides in an insight bomb that you could snap your fingers to. It's good. But before we get to Ben, my erotically undone six-week course is open for you to start expanding on your skills and embodiment as your best lover. It's my favorite course that I've created to date, and it will now be available for you to take at your own pace. Good sex and cultivating these skills takes time and devotion. We do not rush our orgasms. (laughs) We do not rush our sexual journey, and neither should we rush our pleasure. So if you've been desiring to experience orgasms for yourself, embody the archetype of the seductress and reach transcendent states in sex, develop a deep devotion to your body and understand the inner landscape of your mind and somatic experience, then this program is for you. The link is waiting for you in the bio. Now to Dr. Ben Malcolm, who was trained as a clinical psychiatrist pharmacist and now is combining his knowledge in psychopharmacology and psychedelics as a consultant through his company, The Spirit 
pharmacist, <laughs> helping individuals navigate the relationships between them. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited with this conversation. It's a pleasure to be on the, on the podcast. So I, as a clinician, I really want to be able to support my clients and my students' autonomy in choosing their treatment for depression with their doctor. And I also want to provide as much information about the best resources, about the most updated <laughs> research so that they can make these informed decisions for themselves. And it really gets confusing. <laughs> There's so many differing uh, perspectives and bias and cultural messages, legal statuses, social pressures, stigmas, you know, the whole, the whole bit. And it makes it hard to uh, yeah, provide the best information for them around whether it's depression, psychedelics, medication, um, emerging sciences. So I really want to start there. <laughs> I know that there's, I think the last research I read, and maybe you have something updated, um, is from 2020 that there was about 13% of Americans who are on antidepressants. And I'm sure that that grew even more because of the pandemic. <laughs> But if we start talking about uh, depression and the theories around it, to really anchor our listeners into the alternative narratives or, or what's out there before we dive into the psychedelics and before we dive into alternative treatments, but uh, what, yeah, how do you how do you approach that, or how do you see the from your information from what you have versus the narrative the cultural narrative um, around depression yeah yeah so i think the cultural narrative around depression is very much that it's an individual sort of thing and that there's something that is happening in your life that is perhaps separate from other people's lives that's leading you to to feel this way um whereas i think a lot of the times mental illness really should be thought of as sort of like a cultural sort of thing like, like why is it that if it's my individual problem that i'm depressed that depression is epidemic and more people are experiencing it than than ever before it seems like well that would imply that there's some type of conditions out there in society that is making people feel depressed or unhappy rather than it's something to do with my own you know personal kind of of, of biology and then it makes you wonder it's like well is is it truly depression a lot of the time, or is it just like that's actually a natural response to the conditions that are that are happening in, in the world? So I don't know, just going back to the psychiatric Bible, the, the DSM, right? Like thinking about like a what their definition of depression is, it's really a, a cluster of symptoms, right? You're supposed to have five out of nine symptoms in the cluster, and they should be persistent every day or most days for at least two weeks. And that's how you're going to define like a major depressive episode. So as far as like, okay, you know, as far as recognizing someone that's feeling depressed, I think that that definition is fine for, for the illness. But if you sort of think about, does that give you any insight into the etiology, into the root cause of why they're feeling that way? The answer is no, not really, or not at all. And there are so many different reasons that a person could feel that way, you know, particularly depression, anxiety, I'll say like, like PTSD, like things like this, these are more like what we consider like biopsychosocial illnesses where it's like, mm. okay, there is a potential biological component of depression. There are certain genes or family histories, like hereditary types of connections that you can find. I think 
the the difficulty there is like it's always like a nature versus nurture is like is it really in the genes or is it just the fact that this family all grew up together with the same habits like interacting in so in, in the same kind of way um mm-hmm. but i think that there's just a lot of other circumstantial types of things you know people trapped in jobs that they don't like or relationships that are not satisfying to them um and yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the definition, like the symptom cluster seems like fairly reasonable, but that symptom cluster and the diagnosis of depression probably represents a really heterogeneous type of etiology pool yeah. overall, which I don't know, like on the one hand, yeah, there's these symptoms and it seems like those are reasonable, but without, if those symptoms don't really lead you any insight into the etiology, then I don't know, you're left with just sort of blanket generalized treatments rather than anything that's mm-hmm. specific for a person. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And I I, I grew up, I, I think I remember being young and being in church. I was I grew up Catholic and that's going to be a whole nother episode. <laughs> but um the uh the narrative I remember the the priest talking about how um, we don't need Prozac. We need Jesus. Right. <laughs> it was it, Prozac, the concept of, I know, you're like, hmm, that's interesting. But, um, the, the, what I'm pointing out to you is how common the, uh, the antidote of our culture was to use an antidepressant, to use an SSRI, like, uh, Prozac as, as the answer. Right. And I think that was such a leading, uh, narrative of SSRIs are the answer to our depression or to these symptoms that, um, depression or some of these mental health challenges that we have is due to a chemical imbalance of our brain. Can uh, and yet we know a lot more since then. I think that was 1999 or 2000 that it was approved. But since then, what do we what do we know that that's is that? Yeah, what do we know about that? That's different because we still uh, have it's still pretty common, right? Right. Well, I mean, still like SSRI types of antidepressants are still like in psychiatry's kind of prescription recommendations or like prescribing guidelines. You know, they are pretty much like recommended as first line types of medications to prescribe, whether it's depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, maybe a couple Mm -hmm. other types of of illnesses as, as well. So as far as like, you know, has has Prozac and the kind of subsequent drugs that came afterwards that are all in that SSRI or SNRI kind of class. Like they're, they're still sort of ranked number one as far as the treatments. But I think like, as, as far as your, your, your point, you know, I think when this drug first came to market Prozac, right. It was kind of came to market based upon this chemical imbalance theory in that, okay, if you have a low level of neurotransmitter like serotonin, then you have a low mood or depression. So if a drug increased serotonin, then it would boost mood. And I believe that those um, that that idea actually came from like dietary experiments where they depleted mm-hmm. people of tryptophan, which is the building block, the amino acid building block to serotonin. And if you take tryptophan out of a person's diet, they do have lower serotonin levels and they do experience a, a lower kind of, of, of mood. But that does not mean, again, like to, to the point in the first question, that the etiology of all depression is low serotonin because the vast majority of people actually have adequate amounts of tryptophan found in, the, in their diet. 
So enter SSRIs, drugs that block the serotonin reuptake pump, which traps more serotonin in the synapse or the space between neurons. So SSRIs do increase serotonin levels and they can make a person feel better sometimes, but there's a delay. And this is, this is where it all falls apart, right? Is the, there's a delay between the time a person starts taking an SSRI and the time that they feel better if they start feeling better. And that delay is at least a couple of weeks and usually more like four to, to six weeks. So really it's more like block the serotonin reuptake pump, increase intrasynaptic serotonin, neuroadaptive genetic event, person feeling better. And that neuroadaptive mm. genetic event is probably the mechanism of antidepressants actually making a person feel better rather than increasing serotonin levels. You boost serotonin equals feeling happier or mood elevation or less depressed, then it would be like you take your Prozac and then within a few hours, you would expect to feel much better because that would what would actually correlate with an increase in the amount of serotonin you have. But that's not true. In fact, persons oftentimes experience sort of like some transient side effects as they adjust to the medication when they first mm -hmm. take it. And it's not until weeks later that it takes effect or they may start feeling better. So whatever is happening is an indirect response to increasing serotonin rather than, okay, your serotonin was low, we raised it and you're better now. Mm -hmm. right? And those neuroadaptive genetic events actually probably involve downregulation of serotonin receptors. And SSRIs are particularly linked with downregulation of serotonin 1A receptors, but they probably globally diminish postsynaptic serotonin receptors. Hmm. Serotonin 2A receptors, which are the ones that are probably most important for psychedelic mechanisms of action. Yeah, yeah. And I love this. And, and I'm sure people's mouths are dropping open like, I don't know what he's talking about, but it's making a lot of sense that this is a way more complicated than what's being taught to us in, in articles that we're reading. And um, I would encourage people who, you know, to take some of these headlines that we read, um, these big headlines that are designed to draw us in and read articles to really uh, read the full article and really sit with you know, some of the information. Because um, what I'm noticing more and more is that we're uh, being presented with things like psychedelics or the panacea or um, uh, no research. There's no clear research that depression is caused by low serotonin activity or, you know, it, it, you know these different um, yeah, statements. And, and what do these actually mean? Like, what are they actually what uh, right. are we critically thinking about it? All right. I mean, a lot of people that believe that they are depressed because they have low serotonin levels, like, like they've been told that by doctors and therefore they are under the impression or feeling that the only solution for them could be a drug that raises serotonin. And I don't know, to some extent, maybe there is some truth to it. Maybe they do have low serotonin levels, but I've never ever met someone that tells me that have low serotonin levels that actually have some kind of measurement from the doctor that told them that demonstrating they have low serotonin levels, right? So it's just like this kind of reductionistic statement that medical providers kind of give to persons as an explanation, but then they latch onto it and start thinking that medications are the only sort of like way to like fix the neurochemistry. Whereas, hey, I mean, 
if I stare in my golden retriever's eyes for 10 seconds, I get a release of oxytocin. If I stare at my screen all day watching TV, I deplete my dopamine, right? So it's sort of like the brain is a dynamic sort of thing and the neurotransmitter levels are responding to stimuli in the world along with whatever drugs a person's ingesting. So even if it were true, which I don't believe it is, that low serotonin equals low depression, I'm still not 100% convinced that there couldn't be other non-drug modalities that could increase a person's serotonin and make them feel well without having to introduce a medication. Um, not that I'm anti-medications at all. I'm, yeah. I'm a pharmacist. Yeah. I'm very medication-centric, <laughs> right? But but in in some ways, it's just kind of a little bit out of hand with a kind of um, fix everything through neurochemistry and, and drugs. Yeah. And I think this is kind of how it was. And maybe the the days of Carl Jung and Freud, everything was about psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Everything was about talk therapies and psychoanalysis and going deep into the psyche. And that was the way that we were going to fix people or help people. And then we sort of discovered things like lithium and chlorpromazine for things like bipolar conditions or schizophrenia. And it was like, wow, these drugs allow persons with this illness to not be institutionalized. Like mm-hmm. they could be in the community if they're taking these kinds of medications. And from there, we've just seen the pendulum swing all the way from like psyche oriented psychoanalysis things to just biologically oriented things with with drugs or medications. And this is actually why I'm so excited about psychedelic assisted therapy, because it's something that finally hybridizes them. It feels like, okay, like there is a, a recognition that there's some psychology to psychedelics that is pretty darn deep. At the mm-hmm. same time, there are neurochemical entities that have neuroplastic sorts of, of effects. So I just think that, you know, finally, it's kind of coming into balance in some ways and that we're understanding that it's not just one side of the pendulum or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're looking at it from a very holistic totality perspective of um, how these inter-influence each other, but medications or psychedelics can be used as a tool rather than the the thing <laughs> that that changes our life. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Or there's a method to like using the tool, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, there's there's both aspects to it in that it's not just psychology and it's not just neurochemical neurochemistry. You know, change the brain equals better. It's somewhere in the middle. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it just feels balanced to me. Yeah. Yeah. But that sounds like so much work. Uh, Maybe I don't want to do the work, Ben. (laughs) Well, Hey, the good part is, is that even if you don't want to do the work, there's still some neurochemical benefit to psychedelics. And I think this is kind of like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, discussion around like integration and yeah, if you really sort of want this sort of fix. It really seems like there's a way of combining psychedelics with therapy that just addresses these things. And it almost always involves changing your life to get rid of the things that are kind of holding you down. But I always use this analogy. It's like, well, there's two ways to make the hot air balloon rise. You know, you cut the things that are holding it to the ground, or you can just keep putting hot air in the balloon, right? And it's not a great idea to just keep putting hot air in the balloon with psychedelics over and over and over and over again. But I think that we're kidding ourselves if we're not going to acknowledge that there's just something about psychedelics that tends to put winds in a person's sail, that tends to increase motivation, that tends to make them feel better. 
And I mean, look at ketamine. Right? Ketamine is approved as a medical entity. Were any of the trials that are done with ketamine done as ketamine-assisted therapy that led to approval? No, that's just the naked, raw neurochemical effects of ketamine that you're observing from those kinds mm -hmm. of studies. Does that represent the optimal method of using ketamine? I don't think so. The jury's out. We probably need to do similar trials with ketamine-assisted therapy. But I think that it's, you know, at the very least, a pretty solid proof of concept that, that a psychedelic, particularly ketamine, has an antidepressant effect that is independent of any kind of therapy that's happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what is it that makes the ketamine? And, and I did an episode, episode 123 on, on this podcast, talking about my experience, both as a clinician and as a client with ketamine. Uh, but from your perspective, how do you see yeah, ketamine being different from SSRIs or other um, uh, antidepressants as well as perhaps even the other psychedelics? Like, is there one that, that may be better than the other or? Uh, yeah, well, ketamine is definitely different in that, you know, ketamine was so exciting, like so exciting to psychiatry because it was rapid acting. It was mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, you could give it a person a ketamine infusion and somewhere between four and 24 hours after the infusion, about half the time, they're going to feel much, much better than they did beforehand. And, you know, coming from the world of SSRIs, where the counseling has always been, you know, begin taking this and four to six weeks later, you, you may feel better and we may need to adjust the dose a few times. It's kind of like, wow, from the time you start taking an SSRI to the time that you sort of really feel better, if it works for you, you're probably looking sort of at like two or three months if you're kind of like going to be adjusting the dose. And even then, maybe it doesn't work for you. And now you're looking at switching things. And so, God, wouldn't it be nice if we just had an agent that you could give to someone once or twice and understand in short order if that's going to be helpful for them or not. So ketamine really kind of, um, you know, was a wow for psychiatry because it was rapid acting as far as an, an antidepressant. It seems that serotonergic psychedelics, particularly psilocybin is being studied for, for depression, also act as like rapid acting uh, antidepressant. So that's, I think, how like well, there's other differences, the intermittent use sure, and th sure. things like that, right? But sort of why was psychiatry so excited about ketamine? But beyond the fact that it had robust efficacy, it was like very rapid sort of, of, of efficacy. Um, but ketamine is different than serotonergic psychedelics as well. It's a glutamate antagonist. It blocks NMDA glutamate uh, receptors probably as a primary kind of, of mechanisms where things like psilocybin, LSD, even drugs like MDMA, they're all serotonergic and working on serotonin receptors. So ketamine really does have a very different mechanism of action, both to antidepressants like SSRIs and uh, serotonergic psychedelics and, you know, has some advantages and disadvantages compared to, to those types of classes of meds as well. But that's why we're so excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, from my research, ketamine is a lot more f friendly with, uh, with antidepressants. Is that correct? Or is there specific? Yeah. Specific yeah. Like, uh, okay. yeah. 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 So, so ketamine is friendly with, with almost all antidepressants really. Um, the exception might be, it's sort of like an atypical antidepressant mood stabilizer, anti-epileptic is like lamictal or lamotrigine. Mm -hmm. There's some information out there suggesting that 
lamotrigine could diminish effects of ketamine, um, diminish some of the dissociative effects, or maybe diminish some of the antidepressant kinds of effects. But outside of that, antidepressants are compatible with ketamine. And it's, a, again, a mood stabilizer and a chemical element rather than you know, a small drug antidepressant, but lithium is also compatible with ketamine, whereas lithium is just contraindicated with serotonergic psychedelics because of risks of seizures. Um, ketamine's also been studied in bipolar depression in persons with bipolar one and bipolar two kinds of illnesses in the depressed phases of illnesses, whereas particularly bipolar one conditions are considered contraindicated for serotonergic psychedelics. Uh, so Yes, as far as like SSRI, SNRI types of medications, they're a lot more compatible with ketamine than they are serotonergic psychedelics uh, uh, properly. But in the sort of circumstances, I've got a person with depression, a bipolar one condition, and they're taking lithium, they're actually still a candidate for ketamine where they're sort of double contraindicated for serotonergic psychedelics because of lithium use and the bipolar condition itself. Um, so... That's, I think, like what, like the, the bipolar person on lithium is one massive advantage of ketamine as far as like eligibility for treatment compared to serotonergic psychedelics and like to point it out when I can. And I think this is really important. And this is um, the backbone of what you do as a consultant for individuals who are on antidepressants, because like I said, like over 13 percent of Americans may be on 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 antidepressants. And psychedelics are emerging even more um, as part of the cultural conversation. So how do we, if we don't have these conversations, people are just taking psychedelics and don't realize the toxicity that can happen or the, um, the dangerous effects or what may just blunt the experience versus what may be dangerous. And so um, this, I, I love this type of conversation. What type of uh, psychedelics would you, would you tell somebody that it would be counterindicative for if they're if on, on psychic, uh, I'm sorry, antidepressants. I guess this or I antidepressants. Uh, sure. Or, uh, or other ones. Well, butrin, I know is another popular one. Yeah. Well, let, let's just stick with like SSRIs or SNRI okay. types of antidepressants, because yeah. if you start talking about disparate classes, like well, butrin, like well, butrin is a dopamine norepinephrine reuptake yeah. inhibitor. Whereas I think like the SSRIs or SNRIs, yes, SNRIs block norepinephrine reuptake, but the sort of like the kind of crux of their mechanism is still blocking serotonin reuptake, right? Uh, so drugs that block serotonin reuptake are typically going to really diminish effects of MDMA. And that mm -hmm. seems fairly clear. Like that seems mm -hmm. fairly clear. Like we have several sort of phase one drug-drug interaction studies that have, that have demonstrated that, right? Um, when it comes to things like psilocybin or LSD, it's a lot more murky and like a lot less clear. Mm. First of all, psilocybin or LSD, there are two substances that don't really have like lethally defined doses. So if there was some blunting or diminishment of effect, it might be more reasonable to consider pushing the dose of psilocybin or LSD up higher to try to overcome that kind of medication blunting or, or resistance. Whereas I'm really unconvinced that that's a safe strategy with MDMA because yeah. it affects a lot of neurotransmitters. It doesn't have the same safety profile in, in overdose. And I get very scared actually that people would 
take a normal dose of MDMA with an antidepressant, not feel much, and then just keep taking more and more and more and actually just go from not feeling much at all to toxicity without really getting much of the experience they wanted in between. So the SSRIs are, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, what would be the symptoms of toxicity? So if somebody was going through that experience and they didn't know any of this information, what what might tell them that they're experiencing that? So the, the symptoms of serotonin toxicity, right, are things like myoclonic seizures, like hyperthermia or like really high fevers, like most psychedelics increase core body temperature, like half a degree centigrade, like on, on average, but we're sort of talking more like 38, 38 and a half centigrade, or maybe like 99, 500 plus sort of like fevers. That's kind of getting in the, I'll say like the danger zone, but like real serotonin toxicities, the fevers are oftentimes, you know, 104 Fahrenheit plus you don't want to wait that late in the game, right? Because things can mm-hmm. kind of progress rapidly. I think of it's sort of like, wow, their core body temperature is up a whole degree centigrade. Yeah. I would kind of take that as like, there's some degree of hyperthermia that's sort of outside the norm happening happening here. Um, and then mental status changes in the other one. And usually it's going to be more like agitated, combative, hostile, or if it's really severe, it could be more like comatose. Um but there's a whole lot of other signs and symptoms of serotonin syndrome or serotonin toxicity that are out there on the internet from looser diagnostic criteria that include things like diarrhea, an mm-hmm. upset stomach, dilated pupils, feeling a bit sweaty, having hyperreflexia, or, or being a bit twitchy. And it's kind of like, well, actually, a lot of those signs and symptoms would be consistent with an intense ayahuasca experience or maybe just an intense psilocybin or MDMA experience. So, and the person's in this kind of state where they could be, they could be paranoid, they could be suspicious. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes people get into what I would call like a difficult somatic experience with mm-hmm. a psychedelic. And it's very tempting to go to the internet afterwards and diagnose yourself with serotonin syndrome or serotonin toxicity. And you will be able to look at it and be like, I was panicked. My pupils were dilated. I did have an episode of diarrhea. I was having stomach cramps. I was severely nauseous. You know, like they can go through these things and sort of like, I had it, right? But to me, I'm kind of thinking serotonin toxicity is a life-threatening toxidrome that you need to go to the ER and you're probably going to get admitted to the ICU if you have it, right? So Mm -hmm. if it's sort of like I was at home and it was just awful for four hours and then I kind of came out of it and I was all right the next day, but geez, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It doesn't sound like serotonin toxicity, right? At least in an extreme sort of version. And I think that's it is like, okay, we're talking about serotonin syndrome or serotonin toxicity. That's like an extreme sort of level that's like poisoning, right? Serotonin poisoning would be a better term for it than Mm. serotonin syndrome because it's not like this cluster of signs and symptoms. It's it's more like a type of poisoning linked with too much serotonin. But you can get this sort of spectrum of serotonergic side effects. And even when people start SSRI antidepressants, you're counseling them, hey, in the next few weeks, as you adjust to this medication, you might have a headache, you might have some more anxiety, you might have nausea, you might have some sort of stomach upset. So it's like, okay, that seems like in the range of normal serotonergic side effects. 
you know, looking at clinical trials with psilocybin and MDMA, some of the most common effects that people experience, particularly in the come-up phase toward the peak, are things like nausea, transient anxiety, physical or emotional discomfort, right? So it kind of seems like, well, that's that's just kind of the flavor of stuff that you get when you push serotonin a little bit, where it's mm-hmm. like really this extreme case, like hyperthermia, myoclonic seizures, agitated or comatose like that sounds more like wow we're in the realm of like actual toxicity now yeah yeah and some of the some guides that i've seen online talk about um using supplements that help with reducing the likelihood of toxicity is that something that you consult on do you help people with that or do you more stay away from that Uh, well, I mean, I help people reduce risks of experience toxicity. That's like a hundred percent, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do I, you know, recommend a lot of supplements to do that? No, that's not usually part of my, my, my strategy. Um, you know, sometimes we do talk about like, if we're going to do something that's sort of high risk, but everyone on board is okay with a higher risk situation. We'll talk about like use of emergency medications or mitigation strategies, like if the worst case scenario actually came up. But mm-hmm. that's more like safety planning rather than we're expecting that to come up. Right, right. More harm reduction to support yeah. them in that. Yeah, right. those dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Um, can these, can psychedelics be used to help people taper off of antidepressants? Or is that a good idea? That's <laughs> the broader of that? Or how does that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the golden horseshoe question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I do well, get people who ask me that because they, they. Oh, yeah. Like, I get people ask me that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could say that I knew the answer, you know, legitimately for sure. Right. I will say that I think people, particularly taping serotonergic antidepressants like those SSRIs or SNRIs, I think a lot of what they experience as far as withdrawal probably mm-hmm. is actually linked to lower serotonin levels, either because. I mean, they've been boosting it for some period of time, blocking the serotonin reuptake pump. Maybe they have less serotonin receptors as a response to having more serotonin around consistently. So if you're kind of thinking, well, psilocybin, LSD, those are serotonergic. They bind to serotonin receptors. Couldn't that help restore some of the missing serotonin signal and maybe sort of take the edge off some withdrawal symptoms? plausible thought waiting for the experiment to demonstrate it right so when people ask me this can i use psychedelics to taper my antidepressants Mm -hmm. my answer is sure if you want to because i don't really feel like at least if you're talking about psilocybin or lsd that there's a whole lot of risk of toxicity from combining them but i always encourage people to think about it like really you're doing two separate things here you're going to do a slow and careful taper of your antidepressant according to best practices, the same way that we would do it, whether you're going to use psychedelics or not, right? And in that process, if you want to start some carefully monitored microdosing, if you want to see if you can get some benefit from an experience before you're completely off with like a macrodose type of, of situation, I'm generally okay with that but you really should sort of view it as like, I'm doing two separate things. And it's like, if the microdosing and if the macrodose helps me with my taper, wonderful. But I'm not counseling people to expect it to help mm-hmm. with their taper yeah. or telling them that it actually does. Cause I yeah. just don't know that for sure. And I have found people report like 
man, that really did help. Or man, I stepped off antidepressants two or three weeks later. Gosh, the brain zaps were killing me. I started microdosing and they just kind of ceased and desisted. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had people that maybe, maybe they take a step down on their antidepressant and they're in some level of withdrawal and then they pick a microdose that's a little bit too high. And then all of a sudden it seems like they're in this sort of inflated withdrawal state that is just very unpleasant for them. And Ooh, they're sort of like, oh, that feels awful. Or, you know, antidepressant withdrawal could be characterized by a lot of anxiety, difficulty sleeping, things like that. And that's what I commonly get reported by people probably when they're pushing their microdose as they get anxiety or difficulty sleeping. So you're adding another cook to the kitchen, right? You're tapering your <laughs> antidepressant, you're adding another cook to, your, to the kitchen. And it's kind of like people don't do great monitoring on themselves in psychotropic medications normally. Mm-hmm. And now you're adding this like extra thing in there. So I just really feel like people need to be fairly scientific about it. They need to be taking pretty close notes. And if they're going to do that, right, I usually suggest that they start their antidepressant taper and go with it until they actually get to a point where they've been tracking withdrawal symptoms. And it seems like, okay, I have this set of withdrawal symptoms that seems fairly consistent. If I introduced a microdose or if I took a larger dose, perhaps with like a facilitator, how does it actually impact those sorts of like things? Whereas like sometimes I was like, well, I wanted to taper my antidepressants. So I started microdosing. Like Mm -hmm. it's a prophylactic kind of tool. And it's kind of like, okay, well, if it's going fantastic, you won't know if the microdosing really did anything for you, or you could have done that without microdosing. And if it's not going fantastic, you won't know if you're really struggling with withdrawal or maybe just side effects to, to microdosing. So I like to people to do sort of like one step at a time, like at least start your taper and sort of get in a groove with that and see how things are going. And when you have some sort of specific things that you're hoping a microdose or a larger dose of a psychedelic could address then the chances of being able to actually see that clearly seem to go up if you're to wait. And generally with microdosing too, I encourage people to take breaks every couple of months because I am worried about long-term risks of valvular heart disease with chronic or semi-chronic dosing. So if I'm sort of thinking, well, man, maybe the average person that hasn't been taking antidepressants very long at all, they're not sensitive to withdrawal, Maybe two or three months is a pretty, you know, standard time frame to to try to stop the medication. But there's people that are pretty sensitive to withdrawal out there that might be looking at more like four to eight month processes for tapering and antidepressant. And okay, if you start microdosing at the beginning and you have to stop it to give a break halfway, I don't know. Like you want to have that ace up your sleeve, I think, as mm-hmm. as as you get towards the end and things get more difficult rather than kind of just doing it all at the beginning and hoping for a good outcome. Yeah. Sure. And that's where we, you know, we add in some of the, the holistic aspect of it too. Like what are, what are some of these other tools that whether downregulate our nervous system or we're working with a therapist or we're going into some sunshine (laughs) exercise things that do help to support that. Exactly. Like, like physical activity is probably one of the most helpful things for antidepressive withdrawal. Mm -hmm. You know, so ultimately easier, is- easier said than done, right? If you're the person <laughs> counseling and the other person's like, well, yeah. I mean, the reason I'm taking this is because I didn't really have that much motivation to begin with. And now I'm trying to stop it. And it's like, I don't really feel like doing much of anything right now. Yeah. So how am I supposed to? And I think that's, 
that's the works very hard. It's very hard. It's, very it's not, hard. it's not easy. And mm-hmm. yeah. And we're trying to I find ways to be able yeah. to support us in the best way that we can. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately emphasizing, I love the way you broke that down, that this is a process and this is a process to also do uh, with our doctor, or at least with the, the tapering down. I remember I was 22 when I was put on SSRIs and for the first time, and I went to a uh, Tantra yoga uh, training and my master teacher slash guru, whatever, I don't know. He told me that I didn't need antidepressants. And at you know, the ripe age of 22, I was like, you're right. All I need to do is meditate. Took myself off and spiraled into a deep depression and suicidality. And so having these conversations around the importance of tapering and the importance of, of um, having this, this intentionality and, and uh, around the process is, is is important. Like, yeah, we want to do psychedelics or we want to go to this ayahuasca ceremony or whatever. There is a whole process that we need to do rather than just to, to dive in or to just say, I can't do it ever. So I I really appreciate that. It seems like the headlines this, these days are kind of like psychedelics are a mystical bullet and you'll just be able to step off your antidepressant and, you know, start eating mushrooms and it's just going to balance everything out and you'll just feel better than you've ever felt. And I do get people telling me, you know, Hey, I started using psychedelics and I felt better than I ever felt, but it's usually like eight months later, right? I get an email, Hey, the consult from last, last year at this time, maybe, you know, it took me eight or nine months to like finally taper off of this thing and go through a series of psychedelic sessions that were guided with some therapy between them. And I'm, I'm finally feeling better, but there was a number of months that were pretty dark and hard in there. Right. And if you're kind of looking at it, like, well, the standard taper guidance is like taper slowly, which is Mm -hmm. like over like four to eight weeks, which is kind of inadequately short for a lot of people that have been taking an antidepressant for like a decade or, or something like that, or perhaps they're just sensitive to withdrawal. You look at phase three trials of MDMA assisted therapy and it's like, okay, what? So they're doing like a month of run-in therapy, three sessions spaced about a month apart with therapy between, and then another month of therapy afterwards. Right? So it's like, well, that MDMA assisted therapy for those three sessions, and it does appear that two sessions works better than one and three sessions works better than two, right? Uh, so it's sort of like, well, that in itself is a five-month intervention. And then if you're thinking about you need to taper your antidepressant and you're budgeting four to six months to do that just to be eligible to receive MDMA, that's a year of your life. Mm. You know? so, so this sort of like transition healing process takes time and it really is a process. And I think that's it. It's like, most people have all the tools they need to heal except time. It's a big <laughs> yeah. one. It's really yeah. hard. It's the most precious resource and it's the one that most people are strapped on. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've had it some takes time. Yeah. I've had some mom students before in the past tell me, you know, trying to go on that taper was they didn't like the person that was coming out around their kids in the their attitude right. was so then they went back on it because that was too risky. That was too right. um uh too dangerous for them. And yet, you know, there is this question of how you know long-term antidepressant use. I, I think 
there's so many people who've been on it for five plus years. And how is that impacting our, our uh, internal uh, chemical makeup? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And not something that there's very much information on. It's like, mm-hmm. what, what is the long-term use? And I mean, major depression as an illness, you know, before they had antidepressants, they would just study major depression. And it seems like most times, I mean, you can have con- consistent chronic depression, but most times major depression is episodic. That's why they call it a major depressive episode. And the diagnosis is to diagnose like a major depressive episode, like five out of nine in the last like couple of weeks. And the sort of like typical length of a major depressive episode was somewhere between like eight and 12 months. Mm-hmm. So and you have antidepressants, it's sort of like, if you look at the prescribing guidelines, it's like, okay, well, yeah, there's the delay to efficacy. But like once a person feels better on an antidepressant, it depends which illness you're talking about. They have slightly different durations that are recommended, but it's usually like, well, you should continue them on whatever dose that made them feel better for at least six months and probably more like nine to 12 months. So it's almost mm-hmm. like a course of antidepressant therapy, I think is ideally somewhere between nine and 18 months long overall. Okay. And it's like meant to sort of like treat this, this episode. So this is another thing is sort of like, okay, if you want to take antidepressants, be permit, be prepared to commit to it, like be prepared to commit yeah. to it for a number of months, if not, if, if not a year, because it's probably not going to do you that great to take an antidepressant for a couple of months, start to feel better. And then be like, Oh, I feel better. and going to stop again. It's, mm-hmm. it's just not, this is not the ideal way to, to use them but they cause this physical dependence. So a lot of people will 12 to 18 months, yeah, I'm feeling much better. Can I stop it now? And then they go to try to stop it and they run into this withdrawal syndrome and they just kind of get stuck on it. And that's it is like, well, depression and anxiety is epidemic. There's more people that have that than ever before. There's more people on these antidepressants as I report. And the number of long-term users just seems to continue increasing. Um, So you know, I don't know what to conclude out of that because it's all observational, right? You might conclude that antidepressants and particularly long-term antidepressant use isn't that effective. Or you could conclude that the world is just getting worse and worse and worse. And that's why people are feeling this way, right? Or maybe it's six Mm -hmm. of one and half a dozen of the other. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I don't know that there is a conclusion. And I think that's one thing that I appreciate about this entire episode of how you're able to hold both of those, um, all these perspectives um, at one time versus so often I see, you know, people on one camp or the other pitting their truth with a capital T against the other and saying that they have the answer. But here you're saying it's not, um, you're, you're not demonizing psychotropic medications and you're not, um, you know, or, or psychedelics, but there's a space and a place for all of it. It's just educating ourselves the best that we can so that we can discern um, discern for ourselves what, what that's right. That's yeah. right. And that's why like, that's kind of why I quit traditional mental health settings because I felt like I couldn't talk about psychedelics with people. And I felt like that was like practicing medicine with one hand tied behind your back, which <laughs> I mean, I get that the drug, most of them are illegal, but that felt unethical to like yeah. know about these other options that could be helpful. And they're saying, please, what is there? What else is there out there? And you're yeah. kind of like, well, this hospital gets paid by the federal government insurance. So I better not bring up psychedelics to them. Yeah, man, that just doesn't really feel like I'm doing people right with with that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but yeah, it's like, I, you know, there's a few different reasons I named spirit pharmacist, spirit pharmacist, but one of them was basically an acknowledgement that, that each person has something unique that is going to make them happy. And I'm not really sure which one of those and maybe not happy, but at least not depressed for, for perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's their quest to find what that thing is. And it's not my job to tell people what that thing is. My job is to sort of like tell them, well, this is how you use one group of tools and you can try those. This is another group of tools and you could try those. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that I sit in a position where most people have tried all the traditional tools or many of the traditional tools and are sort of disenchanted with it, right? So it's sort of like, hey, if if you wave a banner out there on the internet that says something about like, you know, tapering medications or psychotropics, then you tend to meet a lot of people that are very disenchanted and want to go in the direction of of psychedelics. And obviously I am kind of an enthusiast around, uh, you know, psychedelics and, you know, I'm bullish on their medical potential and, and things like that. But yeah, that's just it is like, I just want people to feel empowered to make the best decision for their health and to feel like they know what they're doing and to feel like that at the very least that they know what they're doing is safe. Mm -hmm. Whether it works or not, frankly, there's just a little bit of experimentation and exploration that persons are going to have to do. And I think that's true even with traditional sorts of medications. I hear a lot of people, I'm so tired of being the guinea pig. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, don't they just know what to give me? And it's like, no, they don't know what to give you, right? Yeah. Your job to find it, right? And yeah. okay, they're they're there to guide you, right? That they have some knowledge about these things, but like, you know, ask why. Push back, mm-hmm. you know, why why this dose? Do I need to start? Oh, I looked it up. This is not like the standard starting dose, or this is half the standard starting dose. Why? You know, like people mm-hmm. should be questioning the rationale behind things a lot. And yeah, we just we we just, we want a savior. I see that a lot. We want this the answer, the savior. You know, give us heal me now. Right. Right. <laughs> but it it is a process and experimentation, and we do have to empower ourselves to do the research. Yeah, yeah. What does a yeah. consult consultation look like if somebody were to work with you? What's that process look like for them? Yeah, so like an individual consultation, uh, essentially, you would just look like you know you you book a time i have an intake form that will you know ask you about your medical psychiatric history drugs supplements that you're taking past psychedelic use why you want to use psychedelics now Mm -hmm. um, recreational substances basically intake form is just like i just want to get as a quick and holistic glance at the person like on paper Mm -hmm. and then we spend an hour kind of like talking through the situation and kind of coming up with a plan and, you know, kind of the first 20 minutes is reviewing the intake form and getting a little bit more narrative from the person about their history. Um, You know, the second 20 minutes is probably like clarifying, like what their goals are for their psychiatric medications or for uh, psychedelic therapies. Cause it, it might be different, right? It might be different for, Oh, I have this benzodiazepine and I've been taking a low dose of it for many years. And it's really helpful for me. I've tried stopping Mm -hmm. it a few times and I don't know. It just, I I prefer to be on it, but Mm -hmm. I hear it can diminish the effects of a psychedelic and I'm looking to hold it for the amount of time needed to get a a potent experience. That's person A, but person B might be thinking, I don't like taking this benzodiazepine. I would really like to taper off of it and and try psychedelics to manage my anxiety condition. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like, all right, well, 
Exactly. So on paper, I'll never be able to tell that person what the sort of like strategy is for them because it depends on how much they like their medications and what they're actually trying to do with them and what mm -hmm. they're trying to do with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And right, you have decriminalization movements, you have religious freedom movements, you have sort of like medical sort of like movements. So there's a lot of reasons why people want to use psychedelics. And so second 20 minutes is a lot of clarifying kind of like goals. And then the last 20 minutes is sort of like, okay, well, I don't tell you what to do, but hopefully by that time, we've kind of gone through enough stuff that I've asked enough leading questions, perhaps that <laughs> you get to a place where you're sort of like, I feel like I know what I want to do. Yeah. And that's a very, uh, you know, that's what we do in therapy too. It's about activating the inner healer in the person and getting them to, to make yeah. these decisions for themselves, the yeah. autonomy there. Yeah. yeah. So it really is like like medication, like coaching, like yeah. would be a, a a good way to conceptualize it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's great. This is very refreshing. I love this conversation. Um, how can people find more about you? Where can they go to? And I know you have a a guide yeah. for people around around the tapering process. Yeah, well, well spearpharmacist.com is my is my website. You know, persons can follow me on social media if they want, Instagram, Facebook. I post on LinkedIn and YouTube a little bit less, but sometimes. Uh, if they want to join my email list, that's probably like the best way to just kind of like stay up to date with whatever I have going on. And also send like a monthly research digest. So I like comb through medical literature and sort of pick like six or seven what I think are leading articles for that month and kind of like summarize it. So mm -hmm. it's not just promotional sales stuff all the time, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, there's some real value to being a part of the, the email list. Um, and yeah, I sort of it's have great. like different, <laughs> yeah, I have like different guides that, that are available, right? Like I have a blog page that has like a lot of kind of different articles ab about me or maybe some, I'll say like more dangerous types of, of drug interactions. Um, I have like a number of free guides. So I had, the one that you were mentioning is the antidepressant and psychedelic drug interaction and tapering guide. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got one on breakthrough psychedelics. It's much more like focused on the pharmacology of MDMA, psilocybin and, and ketamine. Um, what else? I have a free webinar. I know there, there's like a lot of ways that you can kind of interact with me all the way from free stuff and free guides to kind of like courses that go deeper, the kind of like middle range all the way to like really, you know, individual personalized psychopharm consulting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I really, uh, really encourage people if they're interested to, to get these guides, especially I've read them and they're, they're really great. They're very thorough. And again, I appreciate your perspective around these as uh, non uh, separating, but very inclusive of the information that's out there. So thank you. Yeah. For I think that's, I mean, just imagine you're an antidepressant user and you're approaching this, right? And let's say mm -hmm. that you're someone that maybe, you know, you said like the statistic, like 13% of people, U.S. adults are taking an antidepressant. I think that is about it on average, right? But it's sort of like, depending on the demographic, like if you're a female age 30 to 65, the chances go up even mm -hmm. more, right? Wow. Um, so, right. And maybe you're... Um, a mom or you're in your 40s and and 50s and you've been using antidepressants for for 15 years and you're the kind of person that if you don't feel good you you go to the doctor and the doctor you know you follow the order and you're not 
a cultural disruptor, counterculture person that's ever broken the law and used an illicit substance, right? And then coming into this like world of, of, of plant medicine and just all over the place, it's like, well, if you really want to heal, you better take off that Band-Aid yeah. or, you know, like, like this kind of like narrative that's so stigmatic towards that yeah. person, that yeah. person that's coming asking for, for your help. And it's kind of like they would not be coming to ask you for your help. They would not be going outside the box. They would not be breaking the law if, you know, they if if they didn't think that there was something there, if they weren't trying to heal already. So to sort of encounter this like overly stigmatic sort of like, oh, you're one of the the sheeple that took the antidepressant. <laughs> it's just sort of like, no, no, there's no room for that. Like there's yeah. no room for that. Like it just, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not, it's not a good look, you know? Mm -hmm. I am right there with you. I love, I love the way you put that. Oh, oh my God. Highlight that, cut that out, put it everyone write that down. Um, thank you so much for this, for this conversation. I love it. Um, definitely sending everybody over to you and, and I look forward to more of your work coming out. Oh, it's been such a pleasure being on the podcast today. Well, that was fun. Thanks for tuning in lovers. And if you want to experience more ecstasy and sexual liberation, head over to sexlovepsychedelics.com and learn about how you can join me for any one of my online or live events. And while you're there, grab my free guide on sex and psychedelics. Remember, this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider and local law before pursuing any of the products or psychedelics discussed. And one final note here, I make this show specifically for you. If you're loving the show, then be sure to leave me a review in iTunes or Spotify to let me know. Happy to be here and happy to serve. I'll see you next time on Sex Love Psychedelics.